Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Kurt Carr and Roger Moeller, the authors of First Pennsylvanians. We are with Kurt Carr and Roger Moeller, and they are the authors of this book, First Pennsylvanians, The Archaeology of Native Americans in Pennsylvania. Kurt, we'll start with you. Uh, when does human history start in Pennsylvania? About 16,000 years ago. It has one of the, like Pennsylvania has one of the oldest archaeological sites in all of North America, uh, the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter in Washington County. How can you tell it's that old? Carbon-14 dating. And also... Uh, <clears throat> It, at the time, it was practically unique when it was excavated in the 1970s. The, the artifacts that were found there weren't found in any other places. And since that time, there's been a number of other sites um, in both Delo in Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia, where we're starting to find sites of an equal age, uh, but also the same kinds of artifacts. And you know, when you have one site that's 16,000 years old, well, Maybe it's not. You know, there's always that kind of issue. But when you start to get more sites and you're finding the same kinds of artifacts, then you're pretty confident that that's when people were in Pennsylvania. They've probably been in North America for several thousand more. What kind of artifacts do you find uh, that are 16,000 years old? Uh, these were uh, knives, spear points, um, other kinds of cutting tools. Uh, so that's what was found then. Um, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter also has a lot of organic remains. Uh, basketry, sandals, things like that, uh, that are very, very rarely found anyplace else in, in Pennsylvania. And, um, but I, to be honest with you, I don't think any of those kinds of things were found at the oldest date. Roger, uh, for someone who has never been on an archaeological dig, what does it look like? What happens there? The first thing you see is a wide open field. You walk in and you say, well, where should I start digging? Well, your first indication is something that you might find on the surface. It helps with a plowed field because the ground's been turned over, rain washes it, and you see most likely stone tools. Now, they might be recognizable. Some people call them arrowheads, but they're actually projectile points. Arrows are very, very late. So it, it doesn't have monumental architecture. It's not like Egypt with the pyramids. You're not going to walk onto a site and, you know, see the skeleton of a wigwam emerging from the, from the sand. It, the picture is gradually put together by the archaeologist. So you identify the site in the first place because somebody finds a, an arrowhead or something right. like it? That would be the very, very first indication. It's called surface collecting. You walk these fields, and sometimes you can walk and walk and walk and not find anything at all and say, oh, I, I don't think there's anything here. But something about the location will trigger a memory of a similar site, and you say, I think I'll dig a test pit. And the test pit might be a meter and a half by a meter and a half, and 
dig it down, sifting the soil through a quarter inch mesh. And sometimes below the surface, you'll see the first indication. It doesn't mean that every site was occupied all the time. That's very unlikely. But they were occupied at different times for different purposes. And sometimes there's a long gap between occupations. What kind of terrain might you look for that would be more likely to find things? Flat ground, uh, floodplains uh, next to, you know, where would you camp today? You don't camp on the side of a mountain. You camp where there's water and then there's other food resources, at least for Native American sites. Uh, so you know, our floodplains along the Susquehanna River are full of sites. There's lots of sites there, especially at stream confluences when the small stream intersects the Susquehanna River. So, Those are the easiest ones to yes. find. And those are where you're most likely to find things in context. Objects that were dropped at the same time are still close to one another. If you go into the uplands, like the base of a, of a large hill, it might have provided shelter from the wind and the cold and the snow, and maybe there could be still be some indication. But if there's no covering, if there's no wind-blown sediment, if there's no way that the remains were preserved in place, they were just washed down the hill. So it's a matter of where do you find it versus where might they have also lived. Our goal is to, I mean, the, the best sites, uh, we're trying to reconstruct past cultural behavior. How do people live in the past? Um, and there are archaeological sites in many different places. But what we would like to find is one visit to that site. Um, and more commonly, what we do find is multiple visits, scores of visits to a site. You mean and, in ancient history, times people would come there? Yes. And people come, they go back to the Indians uh, followed a seasonal pattern of, of camps. They would go where the food was. You know, to the, uh, the fish migration, they went to that site. There was a place where they collected acorns. They went to that place. So they're, they're moving around to these different food resources. And um, so they occupy the site on a seasonal basis for hundreds of years or even thousands of years. I mean, there's numerous sites in Pennsylvania that have been visited for thousands of years. Uh, but we would like to find that, what we like to find is just that single visit. And if you can find a series of single visits, you can compare how culture, you can document how culture has changed over that time period. And City Island, for example, is, uh, we've dug to the bottom of City Island. It's 12 feet deep. Uh, we found occupations, the oldest occupation we found so far is 8,700 years old based on a carbon-14 date. But the beauty of, of City Island is that there are a series, it's like a layer cake, it's that analogy. There's a series of visits to that site and we can see how it changed over 8,000 years. That's the ideal site and you find these in floodplains, typically in Pennsylvania, where the flood deposits cover up each one of the occupations. Uh, so, Roger, you said you start and you dig a, a test hole or something like that, and mm -hmm. then when do you decide that it's worth a major effort, and, and what are your next steps? Very difficult question. Sometimes it's just experience. It's a gut feeling that when you've gotten down, say, below the plow zone, the plow zone has very been, been very disturbed over a period of time, and you get down to the surface of the undisturbed subsoil. Then if you find pits that the people had dug for various purposes, maybe for cooking, maybe for refuse disposal, maybe for storage, and you find posts 
the remnants of the post, where it was the edges of houses and things like this. They say, okay, that's one occupation zone. Sometimes when you expand this area, you might start out with a bulldozer and clear the, clear the top off, still preserve the subsoil surface. You just shovel it down flat. And places in the upper Delaware Valley where we, where we had worked might be 16,000 square feet, just pit after pit after pit after pit, and remnants of houses by the posts that were driven into the ground. They do that level and then go down deeper and deeper and deeper. But the first time I was at that, that one site, those 16,000 square feet, we walked over the surface back and forth and back and forth. People had collected on that site for 100 years. We didn't find anything. So I said, okay, let's excavate a 10 foot by 10 foot, sift everything, go down, got down to the subsoil surface. There were no artifacts in the topsoil. There was no stains on the subsoil surface. And I said, Just let's make, let's make it 300 square feet. So you open up some more. I still had the feeling that there was something there. It turns out that we'd spent several summers there. We'd gone down to 11 feet below the surface. It's one of the best sites that we had to work with. And it was just, I got the right feel. I've been on these kinds of sites before, and it's just something about this. It's the right location. Everything is right. We just haven't found where the people lived. Because the field is 87 acres. They couldn't live absolutely everywhere at the same time. How so, often do you spend a whole day or weeks and have nothing to show for it? <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. I did one survey. We dug 1,000 test pits, 50 centimeters in diameter, down at least a meter, nothing. Not even one stone on the floodplain. They said, something is wrong with this. It's a perfect place. Had the same kind of feeling. It's the right location. It's on the edge of the river. The sediment should have covered over these things. But we dug a deeper trench and saw that there had been so much flooding and erosion, the sweeping back and forth across this portion of the valley. Whatever had been there had been swept away new sediment put in, and the sediment really wasn't that old. But finding nothing is, uh, we call that negative data. <laughs> so it, it, it contributes to our understanding of where sites are and where they're not. So there's a positive spin to that. <laughs> so, as I, if, if I would wander in on one of the digs that were going on, what would I see? I mean, how many people would be working and who are they? We're conducting an excavation at Fort Hunter right now. It will be over in, October in Harrisburg. 2nd. Yeah, it's at, yeah, five miles north of the Capitol on Front Street, or what used to be Front Street. Um, <clears throat> in this case, it's a historic, we're looking for the fort, at the French and Indian War occupation up there. Uh, and we have several um, blocks of soil open, you know, uh, 20 foot by 20 foot, 20 by 30 feet areas that are opened up. Uh, and they're opened up at different levels. Uh, right now, we're excavating um, um, a smokehouse uh, that dates to probably the 1820s. 
on one side of the, the ice house at, in the backyard of Fort Hunter, the mansion of Fort Hunter. On the other side, we're about four feet down below, five feet below the surface, and we're excavating uh, Native American remains that are about five or 6,000 years old. Uh, so you f see things at different levels. And then the, you know, when you take the dirt out of the ground, it's all screened, and so there's screening areas that are big piles of dirt with, with screens on top of them. We have a crew of uh, eight people, uh, several volunteers, and that, that varies from day to day. Are they uh, trained archaeologists or just people who are interested? <clears throat> the people that we have are all trained archaeologists, but the volunteers are not. But many of the volunteers have worked with us for years. And so they have that kind of uh, experience and sort of on-the-job training. Who, uh, who owns the stuff you find? In this case, well, whoever owns the property. In Pennsylvania, and most of the United States, whoever owns the property, uh, they own the artifacts. Uh, Fort Hunter has been gracious enough that they're going to donate those artifacts to us. Uh, to the state museum and that frequently is an arrangement that we make if we're going to invest that kind of uh, effort into a site then they donate them to them. We've excavated other sites like that and the landowner is you know more than willing to donate this stuff to it because they are frequently interested in you know what happened in my backyard what happened in my farm field you know what's the history there and so they're pretty excited about it at Fort Hunter. Are there landowners who just don't want you in there? Oh yeah yeah there are landowners who definitely don't want us in there. Um, <clears throat> There are certain, you know, developers uh, frequently are afraid to find anything on a property that uh, they're going to develop for housing and therefore destroy the archaeology. So they, they aren't enthusiastic about that. Frequently. What are the laws about that? Again, it's your property. Now, if you have to get uh, state or federal permits for that or you're getting state or federal funding, then it's the responsibility of the state or federal agency to do the archaeology before that project. But if you're just doing a private you know, there's no uh, major permits, uh, there's no funding outside, you know, f uh, government funding, then you, you do what you want to do. Have you each come across horror stories that you've encountered? It's, it's, you have to define horror. Yeah, there's, 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 there's the horror, horror of finding half of something. Oh my goodness, what did the whole thing look like? Or if I'd only gotten here a little bit sooner, you know, this thing is disintegrating before my very eyes. Oh my goodness, it's a turtle shell cup, except that I don't have the right preservatives and there, there's no way to stabilize this thing. So you photograph it and watch it as the thing gradually exfoliates. Really, right in front of you. Right in front mm -hmm. of you, it just dries out. And if you, you, you can't just rebury it, you can't just put water on it. It was the stable environment until you removed that layer of dirt. There's other kind of horrors, but you know, this is cable TV. And just, <laughs> it could air during the daylight hours. But there's, yeah, looting of archaeological sites is, goes on in Pennsylvania and all over the United States all the time. Um, and that's most unfortunate. It's the majority of it is on private properties, and so people are allowed to do it. They're there wasn't an example up on the North Fork of the Susquehanna, and I can't remember, well, we don't need to remember, I guess, where uh, a gentleman was uh, selling rights to dig on his property. And so people were, for $25, could spend a day there taking all the artifacts they could find. And that was pretty awful. Because, you know, archaeology is like a puzzle. We're trying to reconstruct the past. And all these artifacts and these archaeological sites, they're all pieces in that puzzle. When you start to take those pieces away, and don't record them, there's no record of them, you know, we're losing that picture. So when you're right. at a dig and someone says, oh, I found something, and you take it out of the ground, what, what happens to it from that point on? 
but we map everything. Archaeology is all about mapping. We spend more time mapping the three-dimensional location of artifacts than we do actually digging. Um, the, the digging is the easy part, so to speak. The rest of it, we have to manage it. Uh, and then that artifact has to be curated. Once it, you know, we have a location of it, but frequently it has to be protected in some way. And if it is an organic artifact, it has to be treated in a certain way so that it doesn't fall apart right in your hands and dry out. So yeah, there's an elaborate process after that. And the, each of the artifacts, um, <clears throat> they're actually labeled with where they came from. And there's a catalog number that's put on it. And that catalog number is essentially a code saying, I found it at you know, North 65, West 50, uh, four inches, level four, you know, six inches below the soil, whatever it was. And then how do you take that piece that you've labeled and figure out what it means? It's in relation to everything else that you found. Because you try to identify things within a large area and then hone in on the individual objects. You would open things up to the same level. And then you'd map all of the surface stains that might be from the posts that have been driven in that could have burned in place and rotted away, or each one of the pits, or each one of the objects. If you find 30 objects, then you map each individual object, you photograph it in place, and you try to figure out what the relationship is between the objects and among all of them as a group. Now, if there are 30 absolutely identical pieces of flaked stone, and they're all this size by this size by this size, and say, okay, now there's, there's got to be a reason. It's got to be one event, one group. You know, there's various standards for when things were deposited all at the same time. It'd be almost impossible over a several hundred year period for these identical things to be placed right here at this same level without them knowing the other, the other pieces of it. You then get the map location. You examine the objects. There's things called uh, use wear. How was it used? A stone tool that's used on a piece of hide gets different kind of wear than if it's used on bone or plants or, or other things. You can examine, microscopically, you can examine the edges of stone tools. And in fact, just like a steel knife goes dull, well, these tools go dull also. And microscopically, at two to 400 power, you can actually see the striations, which tells you which direction it was used and polishes, and, and again, you can figure out, they've done lots of experiments with this, so you can actually tell the function of many stone tools. So you can tell it's actually a hammer and not just a yeah. conveniently shaped rock. Right, right, right. or it's a right. knife as opposed to a projectile point. And then where did the stone come from? People think stone is stone. Well, certain stones come from certain places, like South Mountain uh, near Gettysburg has rhyolite. There are other places that have rhyolite, but there's a definite look feel, chemical, call signature, chemical traits there. And the same thing with Jasper in the, the Redding area. Now each kind of thing, so if you find this Redding Jasper and you find it near Gettysburg, and it's all been made into these different kind of tools, there's some kind of connection. Now, then you have to say, 
this is where it gets into bizarre theories of, is this trade? Or did somebody just walk from Gettysburg to Reading and get this? Or did they start in Easton, walk through Reading, hey, this is really cool, and then make it, and then they're finally camping in the Gettysburg area. So you look at all these different possibilities. For trade, you say, okay, it's something for something. What would they have here to get this? And is it direct trade? Does somebody hike over there and trade it, or is it a series of middlemen along the way? This, this brings in a lot of the anthropology. Archaeology is just trying to start with the tangible objects. But the anthropology is the social relationships, the political relationships, religion, all those intangibles that we don't dig up, but maybe the connections among the objects would hint in that direction. And once you have your data and it's all on the table and you're sitting around the table, do you have disagreements about what it all means? Oh, we fight all the time. <laughs> like cats and dogs. This morning, we started off that way. We, we started the morning with a fight. It was unbelievable. The, because everybody comes at it in a from a different direction. <clears throat> if you were to lay out 30 items common to television production on a table, and you call in the producer and the director, well, they could say, well, you know, we'll put this together into the, the story of what's going on. You ask, uh, you know, one of the drivers that, that's bringing the equipment, and say, okay, you know, tell me the story. That, you know, I don't know, that kind of looks like a camera, and that looks like, uh, I don't know what that is. It depends on your background as to how you put these pieces of the puzzle together. And people with different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, they put pieces together differently. And what is each of your backgrounds? So you, you run a company called Archaeological Services? Right. What is that? Right. Right now, it's basically editing and writing. And I have many books and articles in process that I've started over the past 15 to 20 years, and I'm trying to finish them while I'm still lucid. <laughs> and I manage a, a group of uh, archaeological companies, you know, nonprofit organizations. Do, that, do you uh, contract out to go and do digs? No, no. I beyond the digging stage, the the back aches and the open heart surgery and other kinds of knee issues and things. I don't do the digging and I don't do the close analysis anymore. More like edited volumes, um, professional journals. And Kurt, you're with the Historical and Museum Commission? Yeah, I'm the senior curator of archaeology in the State Museum. <clears throat> and so we manage all the artifacts, all the archaeological materials that the state has collected over the past hundred years or so. Um, and there are a variety of things that we do. Are, we have a staff of eight and um, just managing eight million artifacts is, it's like a huge library is what it is. And people come and use those artifacts for their research. And so we have to, that's one aspect of it. And that's where we spend most of our time. But public outreach, such as this book, um, you know, letting the public know what has been found in Pennsylvania, you know, explaining and describing the archeology span of Pennsylvania is something else we do. Uh, and then we also um, do, I do research. 
Um, so we're working at Fort Hunter right now in the French and War, uh, French and Indian War occupation, are focusing on that. Uh, but most of my research has been on Paleo-Indian sites and early archaic sites in Pennsylvania, things that are 10, 12,000 years old uh, in Pennsylvania and in the Middle Atlantic region in general. Can you each remember uh, in your careers a eureka moment, like a magical moment where you found something and just couldn't believe it? Sure. You probably I, have more than one, but... Oh, the first one that comes to mind is uh, a Paleo-Indian site in Connecticut. And this dates to about 10,000 years ago. And I was working for a small museum and they wanted to have a field school, a dig for a lot of inexperienced people. So I studied some maps and of the area. I was, I was new to the place and I said, this, this spot right here, it's a good chance for a stratified site, a series of occupations and I said, the surface collections showed it should be during the Archaic, maybe 3,000 years ago, 4,000. Very nebulous. There was a carbon-14 date of about 3,000 years ago, but I didn't know what it related to. So we started at the surface and sifted the topsoil. Oh, a few pottery sherds, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Everything is churned. We get down, we keep going down, and in Connecticut, when you're a meter below the surface and still in sandy soil, something is wrong. You should have hit glacial till by then. This is a very, very unusual circumstance. I get down to almost a meter and a half, and this woman, this was her first week at any archaeological site. She scrapes, and I hear this ringing sound. And I said, oh, just a minute. And as I bend over, she's picking this thing up. It is the top half of a fluted point. Definitely 10,000 years old. I said, wow, that's really <laughs> terrific. I've, I've censored it for the, for the audience. Wow, look at that. And I said, you know, lab, photographed, labeled, all this other stuff. And then about a half an hour later, you switch people around in different places, give them experiences. This guy here, scrape, scrape, scrape with the trolley, this ring, I go, I know what that is. It's another piece, and he picks it up, it's the bottom half of that same fluted point, and they fit right together. This was the first time in Connecticut for an in situ, means right in place, deeply buried Paleo-Indian site. And we had charcoal, and, and it was really fantastic. It really set the stage for a lot of additional research and a lot of when was changes. That, what year were you digging up there? Uh, 1977, yeah. and again in 1982. I had, uh, on a similar kind of site, a Paleo-Indian site in Virginia, I was in graduate school. Actually, this was 1972. And we were digging a Paleo-Indian site, and it was stratified, so it was in layers. Uh, and it was close to a quarry, so it was close to a place where they were getting stone. So one of the main things they were doing there is making stone tools. And we were, initially we were just sort of shovel scraping and quickly removing artifacts and putting it all through a screen and catching it that way. And one of the other graduate students said, no, we should be mapping the exact location of every artifact. And I thought, wow, this is going to take a long time. But very 
soon we had developed maps of all these little flakes that the, you know, when they're chipping stone tools, all these, it's like whittling wood. All this stuff comes off. And, you know, these are all little pieces of whittling. How important is that? You know, we're, we're spending a lot of time on this. And I was really wondering about that until I saw one of the maps. And clearly what it was was an individual sitting cross-legged. Um, and when he was chipping stone, most of the stone fell over here and a little bit fell over here and just a little bit fell over there. And you could see his leg imprint. And <clears throat> that's when I said, that's why we have to map things like this. And I've been mapping individual artifacts ever since. And it does take long, but you get a huge amount of information out of that that you don't get from just shoveling it through the screen. Uh, to shift to the uh, information in the book, first of all, you mentioned earlier on the program the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter. Mm -hmm. Can you explain who the people were who lived there and what their lives would have been like? They were people who had come from you know, Siberia, uh, probably several thousand years before that time. Uh, they had been living in a pretty cold environment, but it was there were lots of animals in that environment. And once humans sort of mastered hunting in, in a semi-glacial environment, uh, they exploited those environments very, very well. And so there are people living in extremely cold areas. Well, actually, in, in Siberia, there's a site that's above the Arctic Circle that dates to 36,000 years ago. And it was very, it's a very large site. They were doing very well at this. And so those people eventually began to expand, uh, probably because of population. They just kept moving. But they were moving into new territory that was completely unoccupied and gradually worked their way across the Bering Strait, um, possibly got into boats and came down uh, the Pacific coast and uh, then entered in Washington or California. We have, there's some old sites there and gradually expanded across the uh, United States or across North America. How fast did they move that they would have? Oh, that's the big discussion because <laughs> uh, there are some people who would argue that, no, humans got here around 14,000, well, got into Siberia around 14,000 years ago, again, hopped into boats, came down, because the ice, uh, all of Canada would have been covered by ice, um, hopped into boats, came down the, the coast, uh, and very quickly, practically jogged across North America and to the tip of South America by about 10,700 years ago. So within a thousand years, they occupied all of North and South America, very sparsely, but nevertheless they did. So that's, that's one argument. It's called the Clovis first argument. And then the pre-Clovis argument is that they got here 16, 18,000 years ago and very gradually filled up North and South America. Again, at very, very low population densities, though. So that's, that still is a controversy. Uh, Ten years ago, uh, when Meadowcroft Rock Shelter was the only site dating that from that time period, uh, most people thought that that was kind of a fluke, that the carbon-14 dates weren't good, or there was some issue there. But as more sites have been found, um, more archaeologists from that time period, more archaeologists are accepting the fact that people got here a long time ago and gradually filled up North and South America. And where is the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter? Washington County. Um, I think it's two miles from the uh, West Virginia border near the town of Avella, Pennsylvania. In fact, there's a museum there now. It's really spectacular. Uh, it's about an hour, I think, west of Pittsburgh. What do you see if you go there? The artifacts, well, <clears throat> one thing you see is they fixed up the rock shelter, so you can actually stand in this rock shelter now. It's pretty spectacular. Because uh, the rock shelter, the sediments are, I think, 12 feet deep, uh, where they found the oldest materials. Uh, but then in the museum itself, it's essentially the history of, of that area, prehistory of that area. Are they but, still digging there? No. Uh, they, at, at times, uh, it's somewhat of an unstable environment, so at times they have to go clean things up. 
although it's been significantly stabilized now that they've, essentially they put those rock shelter under glass. What do you know about the people who were living there? As Roger alluded to earlier, uh, we're, we're anthropologists, and so we've studied hunters and gatherers who are living in the world today or you know, in the past 100 years or so. And we use them as models. It's called ethnographic analogy. We use them as models for the way people lived in the past. Um, we would consider these probably a band society. People lived in groups of maybe 15 to 25 individuals. Uh, they, again, moved from place to place where the, wherever the food resources were on a seasonal basis. Uh, everybody within that band was probably related either by marriage or by blood. Um, they probably weren't organized around a, a, a group of males. It, might, it was probably both males and females that were, were the central core of this. It was, uh, wasn't male-oriented or female-oriented. Um, and they lived as you know, a pretty simple life. And it was a pretty simple social organization. It was very flexible so that um, you know, if you had problems with your brother-in-law or something, the way they solve, the way hunters and gatherers frequently solve problems is they just leave. They, they separate. There's no fighting going on. There's no, you know, they, they really abhor any kind of arguments. You know, as soon as tension starts, then the, the way to solve that problem is one of the people leaves. And so, but it means they could go to another band where, you know, you have a cousin or you, you have some other relative. Uh, so it was very flexible uh, social organization. Is there any way of knowing if that was it in Pennsylvania at the time or whether there were other settlements similar in other it's, areas? I mean, how isolated was this little band of 25 it's, people? It, it's a matter of finding the evidence. Who knows? Right now in somebody's front yard, they could be out scratching and scratching and scratching, and all of a sudden they say, well, this, this looks different. You know, what, what's, what's this thing? And, and they could be uncovering something that would lead to more similar sites. Right now, you're, you're not going to get good preservation of the organics of that time period unless it's a more or less sealed environment. It's protected from vast changes in moisture you know, the, the rock shelter is, is good to stabilize Very it. Very dry, helps to stabilize the temperature. But the same kinds of tools could still be elsewhere, the same kind of stone tools, the same type of arrangement. It's just a matter of sometimes it's luck. Sometimes people look at the known spots and say, I see a pattern. These people are looking for this type of setting. And then you look for similar, similar types of settings and say, okay, now we've never spent a lot of time looking in this area for these types of things because we are never concerned with this time period. When someone identifies a new diagnostic artifact of a particular time period, or they recognize this pattern, then you look back and say, okay, no, have we ever seen that before and not known what it meant? Because it's a data management issue. You know, you've made thousands and thousands of observations of things, and then somebody will say, did you ever notice that, oh, just a minute, I gotta look that up. And so that's why the curation is so important and why the recording of the the measurements and the types of stones that are used and where they came from. We have collections that people, numerous people have gone back and reanalyzed. You 
<clears throat> the first time you look at it, you collect certain kinds of, you look at an artifact, you collect certain types of data. Uh, and we've seen that, well, with changes in technology and just changes in the way we perceive artifacts, you look at them again. And numerous times, the same artifacts get looked at and reanalyzed. And that's the beauty of curating these things in, what, in state One museum. of the things would be to determine where the clay came from that a pottery vessel was made from. And there's a chemical signature. And nobody ever thought that was possible. They looked at the designs and said, okay, in this part of New York State, we see this design, thousands and thousands of shards of this design. And now we find it in the Delaware Valley. So was this one of the cousins that got shunned and sent over to the Delaware or was this a group that came from that area and for a while they made their own style or was it a trait, you know, all these possibilities. Now, if you can get a chemical signature of these sherds and say, okay, they're definitely identical and the only way they can be identical is if they came from the same clay bed so that they have a, set, a source in common so you know that the object traveled. We've, we've gotten pretty far into this conversation. We haven't really talked about the book yet. First of all, if something- Oh, people have to read the book. <laughs> yeah, right. We don't want to give away the ending. <laughs> <Yeah>. if, but <laughs> if, if somebody goes out and buys this book, what do they get? They get a um, description of Pennsylvania archeology span in relatively simple terms. We tried to avoid technical terms. And whenever we use technical terms, we had a, a Actually, we have uh, experts that um, talked about microware, talked about lithic sourcing, talked, you know, a variety of different technical topics. So you don't have to read that. You also get a very, very well illustrated uh, book of Pennsylvania artifacts. And many of these artifacts um, aren't illustrated anyplace else. Uh, there's been a lot of archaeology over the past 30 years uh, ahead of state and federal construction projects. When PennDOT does a job, uh, road job, they do archaeology first. The Corps of Engineers the same way. They've done some very large projects. Uh, unfortunately, that's taxpayer money. Uh, unfortunately, they end up in a report and we have, you know, one of two copies in our, our lab. That's the, you know, and so there isn't a wide distribution. And that was the other reason we wrote this book, because we wanted to get that information, this so-called gray literature that doesn't have wide distribution. We wanted to get that out to the public also. And so we, a lot of the artifacts in there are from these compliance, these state and federal projects that uh, have been done and really aren't available anyplace else. You have a number of uh, stories in here you call a, a, a narrative. Here's a mm -hmm. Paleo-Indian child's narrative by Megan Jennifer Carr. Any relation? My daughter, yes. And <laughs> how do you construct these stories? These are sort of personal stories that might have been uh, from these people. Um, Roger can talk to that because he has some. Uh, he wrote some of those, uh, but we w we did want to get a diversity of people, of voices, if you will. So we have an Indian who wrote one of the stories. We have a female that wrote one of these stories, uh, but Roger and I wrote the the rest of these stories based on archaeological data and, to some extent, our impression of what life was like uh, at that time. It, also, you you try to channel the entire experience. You look at the environment. You look at the level of technology. What did they have to work with? Where did they get their raw materials from? What was the day-to-day -day really like? Now, a lot of people, I will say in greater Harrisburg, don't know what living in a third world country is like. They're not closely familiar with the 
day-to-day subsistence. You know, we have to grow it, find it, chase it down, pluck it, dig it, you know, those, those basic things. All the food is out there. You just have to find it, bring it in, and then process it. So I have a lot of experience in other places and observing things. The anthropology tells you that everybody has, is facing the same problems. All cultures have the same structure. We all have to solve the problems of social relationships, politics, religion, housing, etc. Now you just have to remove our current cultural shell. Think about it without a cell phone. <laughs> Think about it without gasoline. Think about it without driving. You have to think about walking. So you get down to the very, very basic level and say, okay, no, how would I do it given this environment? How would I do it? And we can reconstruct the environment based upon plants, animals, uh, pollen, various kinds of organic evidences from sites of different time periods. So we have a pretty good idea of the kinds of resources that would have been available. Now, how do you get from resource to resource? You've got a plan. You've got to know where it's available. And I think they went back. They had a regular seasonal round. They said, okay, I remember the hickory nuts were great over here, and then the fish run, and then this and that. And then you just got to figure, okay, you got to walk there, and you got to carry this, and you you got a plan. And well, going back again to, to the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter and the people 16,000 years ago, what, what was Pennsylvania like? What was the climate like? What were the trees like? What were the animals like? It was during the Pleistocene. It was during the Ice Age. Um, and it would have been a very different group of animals than we have today. Uh, mammoth, mastodon, horse, camel, uh, bears, uh, all of those animals that you see in those classic uh, caveman <laughs> movies, they all would have, not dinosaurs, we, no dinosaurs. <laughs> I'll but, read you this. You yes. say the, the foods available to humans include mammoth, mastodon, as you said, muskox, horse, camel, giant sloth, yeah. peccary, moose, caribou, elk, small mammals, fish, roots, seeds, nuts, and berries. So if you yes. want to do a, a paleo diet, there's the list right there. That's it, right. And <clears throat> how much they were hunting some of those animals, we don't know. Uh, we know, uh, we have examples of the killing elephants, mammoths and mastodons out west, but in, in Pennsylvania we don't. But they were clearly contemporary with those people, with those animals. Um, but I, and this is, this is where I think some of the anthropology, he's, you're at least 10 years older than I am, aren't you? But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but um, Okay, bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm a believer that um, I, we don't have a lot of data on diet, uh, especially from these early time periods, although Meadowcroft does have seeds and nuts and berries from that time period. But uh, we don't have a whole lot of that. But I assume that uh, people have always been eating seeds, nuts, roots, and berries. They're very easy to get. Uh, we don't have data on that, but we assume that that's, I, I assume that that's what they were doing. If you're going to go out and kill an elephant, that's risky business. You might be able to show off, gain some status, but that's kind of risky. And... Unless you kill it in the wintertime, a lot of the foods, a lot of the meat's going to go bad. You can't eat. Twenty-five people can't eat, you know, an entire elephant. So that's that's a tough thing to do. So I think you know, roots and nuts and berries. Now, during the Pleistocene, there weren't many trees. You didn't have a lot of nuts. 
this was an open, almost a parkland environment where you might have an acre of trees and it would be spruce and pine so you don't have those nuts, surrounded by 100 acres of grassland or, or at least scrub forest. So Pennsylvania was not as forested then oh, as no, it is now? No, no. It wasn't until um, the ice had melted well into Canada about 10,000 years ago that forest started to move in here, and actually the first forest was a spruce pine, or pine hemlock forest. Again, low resources, not, not a lot of food resources in that kind of forest, and it took a while for deciduous trees, which had been growing in the south, in Virginia and Georgia and so on, it took a while for them to actually migrate north. Uh, and it wasn't until probably about 9,000 years ago that we have the modern deciduous forest that, that came in, and that has, and it was interesting because at that time there was 60, 80, 100 people maybe living in Pennsylvania, and suddenly there was food all over the place. And those people were you know, living a really, really good life because there wasn't a whole lot of pressure on the resources. There were tons of uh, you know, deer, elk, uh, beaver, turkey, wild uh, ducks, and so on. So there was lots of things for them to eat, along with all these nuts that are so easy to collect. It wasn't until 5,000 years ago, or even more like 4,000 years ago, that there were so many Indians in Pennsylvania that actually there was competition for these, these food resources, and they had to work a lot harder uh, to get food. There's a lot we could talk about, and we only have an hour, unfortunately, but I want to ask you about arrowheads, or you refer to projectile points. First of all, what's the difference? One's a spear, thrusting or a throwing spear, more likely a throwing spear. They probably use an atlatl. Uh, spear thrower uh, to throw them, uh, and the other is used, uh, an arrow is used with a bow. And how can you look at, you have pictures of a lot of different projectile points or arrowheads in the book, and how can you look at them and tell how old they are? I mean, did technology develop? No, technology changed. I, I don't know that um, <clears throat> it didn't necessarily get better, it just changed in styles in many cases. And yes, there's, certainly there's some functional differences between these different shapes of, of spear points. But especially early on, uh, Roger talked about finding a fluted point. Uh, it's a very distinctive shaped spear point. Uh, and they're found all over North America, and they always date between 10 and 11,000, 11,200 years ago. So when we find that, we know, and it wasn't made any place else in the world, in fact. So when we find that, we know what that dates to. It's called a diagnostic artifact because it's distinctive for that time period. And after that, there were also other there's very distinctive shapes. That every time we find them and we date them with carbon-14, an absolute dating method, uh, they always date to the same, you know, between 9 and 10,000 or 8, 8,500 and 9,000. There's a whole series. And then after probably about seven, uh, 6,000 years ago, the, for whatever reason, the spear points aren't as distinctive anymore. And they cover either longer periods of time uh, or they're just, um, they aren't as diagnostic as they used to be. And there are some, there are certainly exceptions to that. There are other time periods when, again, people were making very distinctive artifacts that always date to the same time period. But it gets kind of hazy after about 6,000 years ago. But back to your point on arrowheads, um, we <clears throat> generally assume that uh, everything before about a thousand years ago, that those were all spears, and they were thrown with an atlatl or spear thrower, so they're reasonably accurate at, say, 60 feet or so. Um, you could bring down a fairly large animal because you have a, a big spear point there. Uh, but we also know that in Africa, arrow points are probably 60,000 years old. The bow and arrow tech archery technology was invented at that time. And again, in Europe, it's at least 15,000 years ago. Well, if the ancestors of Native Americans got here at 15,000 years ago or so, 
They should have brought the bow and arrow with them. Uh, it's all organic though. We can't really make the distinction between a spear and an arrow uh, because it's the shaft that, that we have to find. We very rarely find those. And I'm thinking that actually the bow and arrow has been here for thousands of years, uh, conceivably 10,000 years, um, and we just don't know that, we just can't see it in the archeological record. At what point did these uh, nomadic people who were in the Metacroft shelter uh, settle down and form a village? Stay put. The, the point at which they could stay focused in one location and obtain all the resources they needed to bring back to that location. And you have to develop a certain level of technology to get enough resources that you can get a little bit of a surplus. And it's the surplus that is going to see you through the, the rougher period of time. Most of the places where we're seeing evidence of houses, and like in the upper Delaware Valley, it's on the floodplain. But the camp that goes along with that is very, very seasonal. They're on the floodplain, seems to be during the fall, you find evidence of fish, small game, uh, sometimes uh, other, other plants are showing up. Sometimes it's very late. It's into the period of domestication with, with actual maize. But they're not staying on the floodplain the whole time. They have to go someplace else. The stuff is being processed. They've generated the surplus. And the thought is they're going to go into the hills where there's more protection from the wind and the snow and the houses. It's wide open on the floodplain. The wind is roaring and you know, why spend the effort? So other places where you have more shelter, maybe at an earlier period of time, they could have stayed pretty much focused in one area and small groups go out and they get the, the hickory nuts and others are fishing and they're bringing back and processing and they say, okay, we can hunker down in there. But there are not a lot of places where you can get the full diet, the full resource that you need, the stone tools, the water, the wood. Wood is going to be your, the, the keystone of this whole thing because you're using up a lot of wood just for firewood. Warmth, keep the predators away, uh, small construction, small houses. It's not gonna be very long before your hike to get wood is, is just not worthwhile. You know, how far would you go to, get, to send the kids for wood you know, for the fire? Five miles, you know, they go out five and come back five dragging the logs and when it isn't a lot easier, okay, we're gonna move the village 20 miles. And then pretty soon you have all these places where the people have lived and the wood is at a premium. You're cutting things down. When did they start agriculture? Wow, that's, that's where we fight it. We fight about that. I think we had that. this discussion this morning. That yes. was your fight this yeah. morning? <laughs> that, that was one of our fights this morning. One, one. Back to the villages though. <laughs> They're associated with corn, beans, and squash agriculture. And in the Susquehanna Valley, about a thousand years ago, you start to see people congregating uh, and depending on, well, a lot of their diet is corn. And certainly by 800 years ago, 
uh, they're living in groups of five or ten houses, and eventually by 500 years ago, 600 years ago, you might be living in 30 or 40, or villages with 30 or 40 houses, and probably several hundred people living in them. And there's, that's, that's full-blown agriculture. If, if you go back 20 years, or go, let's go back 50 years when I first started in archaeology, there, there was this theory or this model that settled villages, plant domestication, animal domestication, and pottery, that's a package. They all come in at the same time. But now we find different places, different times. So the earliest domesticates are going to be a couple thousand years earlier than you actually have substantial housing. But what's, what does one domesticate mean? Is it going to be enough to generate a surplus that you can stay in that one camp and not have to move for six months? No, there's no evidence that they were collecting, producing, dependent enough upon this in such quantity that they didn't have to go out for raspberries and for all those other foods. It isn't until maize comes along that you have something that is sufficiently substantial to generate a real surplus. In your book, you have a lot of different pictures depicting what settlements w would have been like at different, in different eras. In your front cover, when, when would this have been, what you have on the front cover? That's um, <coughs> deciduous forest occupation, and we figured they're grinding corn here, so this is, would be a late woodland period of uh, village. Uh, of about a thousand years ago, twelve hundred or eight to. Uh, and is that a dog in the picture? Yes, they. So they had. They brought dogs with them from dogs Siberia. By then. Yeah, yeah, dogs would have been. Uh, dogs are a very handy animal for a variety of reasons. <laughs> so they do all kinds of good things for humans too. And, and you find but, settlements or uh, evidence of settlements in all parts of Pennsylvania? No, that's the interesting thing. Um, the Susquehanna Valley, especially the lower Susquehanna Valley, there were villages here at the time of European contact that had 3,000, or certainly 1,000, 2,000 people in them. And the same is true out in the uh, Allegheny, Monongahela uh, area of Pennsylvania, where you had villages, not quite as large, but you had numerous villages there with hundreds of people in them. You go over to the Delaware and the famous Delaware Indians, we don't see those kinds of settlements. Uh, certainly at the earlier times and that we see them in, in, um, in the Susquehanna or in the, certainly, again, the, uh, the Allegheny is the earliest place where we see villages of hundreds of people. But it is curious, um, the Juniata River, the Lehigh River, we're not finding these big villages. Uh, and they might well be there, but we just haven't found them yet. If, if someone's watching this and they're interested in it and they want to go and see one of these sites, how do they find out where the digs are and, and are they allowed to go and look over your shoulder? We have a public excavation at Fort Hunter. Uh, we've been up there since 2006. And again, and the, again, that's Harrisburg. Yeah, and that's uh, the public is welcome to, to come to that. And we, we have visitors, hundreds of people show up to that, actually thousands. But anyway, um, the other excavations that are going on in the state, in some cases uh, by different universities, uh, you'd have to call up the university to find out, you know, <laughs> when they're digging and where they're digging, and, and the public's not always invited, but usually it is. But also state and federal agencies, they're doing archaeology, and um, they're probably less interested in the public. They certainly want to know that they want the public to know that the archaeology is getting done, 
but um, you know they're worried about getting it done efficiently and effectively and they're this might be an overgeneralization, but they're not as welcoming of the public. And again, you'd have to call up individual agencies to find out where they're doing archaeology. There's also the Society for Pennsylvania Archaeology that yes. has local chapters yes. across yes, the yes. state, and they do conduct excavations. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. And they have a website. Yes. So yes. just Google Society for Pennsylvania Archaeology, and you'll find their website. And there's then there's dozen chapters across Pennsylvania, so there's somebody it's, local. Yeah, there's all, there'll always be one that's close to somebody in the state. How often does someone come across something in archaeology that causes everybody to rethink all their previously conceived notions? It's a matter of... <laughs> <laughs> He's old. It, he doesn't rethink anything. <laughs> no. I have ideas all the time. Some of, them, some of them, when I'm really lucid, you know, people will catch on to. And the say, wood. The wood example, though. That changed okay. people's ideas. Yeah. yeah. Every every once in a while, see, people put these things out there all the time. There's always an insight. It's just how now in the information overload age that people can access that insight. How many? How can you spread that one insight? Because I've come up with a lot of things that I thought were just groundbreaking. This Paleo-Indian thing, like Kurt was saying, Paleo-Indian in Pennsylvania, I mean, there's desolation. It's ice, it's the environment is very, very forbidding. The people are having difficult times. The first trees are going to be the evergreens coming in. Paleo-Indian site in Connecticut, that was the same model that everybody had, except I identified the charcoal that was found at the site and it's deciduous. So I came up with this model of a mosaic environment. There were bogs that had pollen that showed evergreens. So if there's evergreens and it's a mosaic. And these people, I think, were gravitating towards the deciduous environments that have a much greater diversity of plants and animals, much friendlier environment. But it wasn't very widespread. This is relatively isolated. With all these bogs that are scattered around where they'd gotten the pollen samples, everything showing evergreen, and then this one deciduous eco-niche. So that was an aha moment. Uh, I'd love to keep talking, but we're out of time, unfortunately. Oh. We have been speaking with Kurt Carr and Roger Muller. They are the authors of this book, First Pennsylvanians, the Archaeology of Native Americans in Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Well, thank thank you. you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.